0: Yeah, the, this gathering um, so far has been just really moving to me um, uh, to sing and worship God together and to put myself in a human place and put God in God's place together. Um, yeah, it's been a really good. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to start doing a new thing this year, and that is we are going to expand the teaching rotation in our worship gatherings. And I know all of you are really broken up about that because you're thinking, you know, if anything threatens, you know, me getting to hear from Charles, you know, more often I'm just going to be devastated, you know, about that. Right. Yeah. Um, um, Well, I want to make a really important announcement that you'll be really excited about that will compensate for any devastation that might be caused by the expansion of the worship gathering rotation. And that is we're going to start hosting TED Talks. In our community. So, Ted, do you want to come on up? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I'm excited. Ted is going to co-teach with me tonight. And um, I'm excited about that. Uh, We will. We'll have some legit TED Talks. Another new thing that we're going to be doing is, uh, and that we have already started doing, a few of us um, did Alpha in the fall. And uh, uh, more of us did um, have started Alpha last month. It's been going for a few weeks now. And if you don't know about Alpha, it is a course that's a great introduction to the Christian faith. So it's a great place to explore questions about life and kind of to have a safe place to really say anything and that be okay and not be judged or browbeaten or Bible beating or any other kind of beating. Um, so it's been really fun. The basic format is you go and you have dinner and you watch a video about a particular topic, and then you break out into small groups and discuss it. And this guy, Nicky Gumble, does all of the video talks. And Nicky, anybody named Nicky that's a dude is probably English or you know British, and he has this cool British accent. I just have this thing; uh, people sound smarter with British accents. Like I could listen to anything they say and believe it just because of the accent. But he still says good stuff, I mean, regardless of the accent. So every night there's a different topic. And a couple of weeks ago, the topic was, why did Jesus have to die? And Nikki shares in his talk about how before he became a Christian, he had a really hard time coming to grips with understanding what was happening in the death of Jesus on the cross. And the whole it was a jump for him to think about. Uh, Okay, so Jesus died on the sins and uh, on the cross that has something to do with the sins of the whole world and my sins and forgiveness. That was that was a hard leap for him to make. And it really got me thinking because I come from a Christian family. I grew up in the church and it was kind of an indisputed assumption that. Well, we know Jesus died on the cross and it was for us, it was for the whole world, it was forgiveness and for healing. That was, that was just an assumption. I never had an experience where we didn't believe that that was true, right? And so, But really, what got me thinking was, okay, what if I put that on pause and just imagine, what if I was not a Christian? What if I had never heard about this? What if I was just some reasonable person, right? Like Dasha was saying, that heard about this for the first time, and somebody told me. So there's this guy. He's a Palestinian Jew. He lived 2,000 years ago. He was executed on a cross some random Friday. Um, he was a religious, spiritual leader of sorts. He was a great talker and great teacher. And he died on this cross um, at the hands of the Roman Empire. And his death means that God forgives you your sins. And the sins of the whole world. What if somebody asked me that as a reasonable person? I would say, you are crazy. You are out of your mind. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard of in my life. Are you kidding me? That is utter nonsense. And outside of the eyes of faith, I mean, it really is. It really does seem silly and foolish. And all of this begs the question... Um, why would anybody in their right mind go on and try to share this ridiculousness with somebody else who might think it was nuts or crazy or outlandish? I mean, wouldn't we sound like fools just spouting foolishness? have a church planner friend who is starting a church in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, which is probably the least church Place in the country, Christians are definitely in the minority there, and so they're working their this core team, and they're trying to start their first missional community. And so they're reaching out and serving the community. They're they're doing these cool things. To, they have pancakes at the park every Sunday, and they they feed the homeless, and they have done the shoe drive where they provided shoes for all these needy kids who needed shoes. And it, so much so they make such traction that the newspaper. Um, uh, caught, caught on and put them in the newspaper and people are finding out about them. And they're making all of these friends and all of these non-Christian people who are service-oriented, they're philanthropic, they're spiritually open, they're totally digging the work that this small team of people is doing. Uh, but there's a problem. There's something missing, the church planner would say. He'd say there's a, there's a gap, something's stuck, because we have now all of these These people of peace, we have all these searching friends, but none of them are really going below the surface with us. None of them are coming to our gatherings. They're not we're not really engaging them in spiritual conversation. And so I said, you know, what's going on? Why? Why do you think that's happening? He said, I think it's because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we start talking about all of this spiritual stuff about Jesus, that um, it'll sound like crazy talk. And our friends will think we're crazy because lots of people in the Pacific Northwest just think that that's crazy, right? It's, a, it's not a religious culture or climate. He says, I think we're afraid to invite people to our gatherings because we'll lose our friends. What if they think they're too crazy? And that's kind of weird. And how could we be friends after that? There's no taking that kind of thing back. It can be scary sharing good news with our searching friends, especially if they might think it's nonsense. Thanks
1: for sharing that, Charles. So Athens, in the first century, Athens, Greece was a hub of philosophy. You had guys like Epicureans and Stoics, and for entertainment... They gather together and take turns presenting different theories, different philosophies, different understandings about the world, mathematics, life, whatever. And if you think that sounds kind of strange, well, we do it today. We call them TED Talks, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was trying to get that joke out of the way as early as possible, and you beat me to it, You're
0: so welcome. thank you. The no, it's good, it's good, it's good. <laughs>
1: They called it the Areopagus. And uh, so people would get up and do these presentations. And actually, much like today, oftentimes people would judge the philosophy based really on the quality of the presentation and not necessarily on the content of it. Uh, in fact, there was a group uh, called the sophists that were, like, really good at this. They would study the way that people reacted to certain words and they would very carefully choose the words, the inflection points, the way that they said things so that even if what they were saying wasn't true, it sounded credible so that they sounded believable and they gathered more followers. And they were very popular among politicians and lawyers, apparently. Um, so it's into this culture that Paul, on a second missionary journey, comes into Athens. He does this thing in the synagogue and in the Gentiles. And eventually someone says, hey, Paul you ought to go do the Areopagus. This would be great out there. And he's like, yeah, I should do the Areopagus. That'd be great. And so he gets in there and he's looking around and he sees all the guys up there and he's thinking, you know what? I got this. And he starts. And you know what he did? He had it. He was like, I see you guys are very religious people. You've got a lot of temples everywhere. You even have an altar to an unknown God. And you can just kind of hear the audience just on the edge of their seats leaning into him. It's the unknown God that I want to tell you about. He is so incredibly huge, the creator of the world, that temples cannot contain him. And graven images cannot represent him. Even your own poets have said that we are the children of the God. So how could that be possible? And they're just eating it up. And he's, he's just really speaking to them on their level. And he says, and, and this God is going to call everyone together. And he's raised up a man that's going to unite the world. And we know that this is true because God raised him from the dead. And it's almost as if you can hear across the entire crowd a collective, what? And in and, and Acts, it says that uh, as soon as they heard about the resurrection of the dead, a lot of people began to laugh at him and ridicule him. And some people said, no, no, no we all want to hear more. But, you know, I kind of think they were just being nice. And so he's on his way to his next city, which was Corinth. And I have to imagine that as he's he's walking down the road, he's going, what just happened there? And what I think he realized, we've got too many iPads up here.
2: First world problems.
1: That he realized this message is absurd. I spoke to the greatest minds of our generation, and it sounded absolutely absurd. And so what does he do when he gets to Corinth? Well, we don't actually have a record in Acts of what he says in Corinth. But in 1 Corinthians, he reflects on this a little bit. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross, you see, is madness to people who are being destroyed. But to us, those who are being saved, it's God's power. And a little bit later... Jews look for signs, you see, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we announce the crucified Messiah, a scandal to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Jews and Greeks alike, the Messiah, God's power and God's wisdom. See, he realized that no amount of dressing up his presentation is going to ever make it more convincing. He tried to speak on the level he tried to to reach that audience And it just fell flat. And so when he gets to Corinth, he just decides to completely drop the pretense. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, I didn't come and proclaim God's mystery by means of a superior style of speaking or wisdom. No. I decided to know nothing in my dealings with you except Jesus, the Messiah, especially his crucifixion. Listen to this. I came to you in weakness in great fear and trembling. Now, when you imagine Paul coming into a city and the end result is a brand new church planted that we have letters written to and read about and the foundation of Christianity, do you imagine him in fear and trembling and weakness? But he was. Because he knew that he was going in and he was going to go to the synagogue and he was going to have them eating out of the palm of his hand because he's a master with the scriptures. And then he was going to say something like, your Messiah got killed and they were going to run him out. And then he's going to go to the Gentiles, and he was going to reason with them and do the great things that he could do. And he was going to say, say something like, raised from the dead, and they were going to laugh at him. He, his lot in life that he came to expect was that he was going to go from town to town preaching absurdity. My speech were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but in transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be in human wisdom, but in God's power. Bottom line that Paul realized the thing that is most central to the gospel story, the thing that gives us hope, that inspires us, that allows us to live in this new kingdom in our present world today, is complete absurdity to everyone else. And there's really nothing that he can do to convince people otherwise. Why don't you
0: cheer us up a little bit? Well, at least we're not crazy. Crazy. To feel like, at least we're not alone, to feel like some of this is uh, scary or that it may seem like crazy talk to other people because the Apostle Paul agrees. Not only did, did he acknowledge that it would be hard for some people to swallow it, he was scared to death to preach the gospel. I don't think we think of Paul like Ted said like that. He, he, was, he came in fear and trembling because he didn't know what he was going to receive for saying the things that he did. This raises another important question for me. If Paul agrees, then what compelled him to go from Athens to Corinth and risk another round of humiliation? I mean, if, if insanity is um, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, I mean, that, Paul is insane. He's going to another place. Well, I hope this goes better. You know, what would motivate him? What would compel him to go for round two in Corinth? Now, I think we can see some of his answer in the remaining portion of 1 Corinthians 2. If you've got a paperback and you want to follow along, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 2. If somebody gets a page number in the paperback and you want to share it, not the paper bag, the paperback. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay, so I'm going to read from chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. In this text, it seems like Paul shares uh, two convictions That really ground him and they ground his in his insanity to try for round two in Corinth. The first conviction is that he believes what seems like nonsense to outsiders is actually the deep wisdom of God. The message of the cross isn't actually ridiculous. Jesus really was the fullness of deity, and he was appointed the king of the world through his death and resurrection. The cross really does provide a pathway for people who put their hope in Jesus to find healing and forgiveness and renewal. And that wisdom is actually more enduring than the philosophy of the most intelligent Ivy League professors or the strategy of the world's most powerful leaders. The second conviction that Paul has in this text is that God, it's God. God is the one who reveals the mystery of the cross to those who are searching for it. Paul wasn't deluded into thinking that he could convince people about the truth of the cross. That was way above his pay grade. He knew that that was God's role. God is the one who reveals the message of the cross to those who are searching and he does it through his Holy Spirit. Paul also notes at the end of this text, we read it takes a certain kind of person and it extends into verses 12 through 16. It takes a certain kind of person to receive it and understand it. It takes a spiritual person, a person of peace, if you will. In fact, the only way that Paul knows the message of the cross is because God revealed it to him at some point. And now he's sharing it with the church in Corinth. All of this is good news. This is really good news. Because as we search, uh, as we share good news with people who are searching for God, this means we don't have to have a snazzy presentation of the gospel. We don't have to say exactly the right words. We don't have to have expensive seminary training to share the gospel. We don't have to convince people that the truth, the gospel is true because God is the one who reveals the mystery of the cross to those who are searching. In fact, if you think about it, the fact that we're reading First Corinthians right now demonstrates that this is inherently true. Paul went to Corinth. He shared, scared to death, the gospel of the cross. And some of those who heard it said, yeah, I'm in. I'm I'm in. I'm all in with that. I want to be a part of that thing that you're talking about. And this church miraculously just sprouts to life in Corinth. And now we're reading a letter 2,000 years later that Paul wrote to the people who had become Christians who had believed with eyes of faith what seemed like nonsense, but was actually the deep wisdom of God. This stuff actually works. Maybe you're wondering, as I did, as I was kind of processing through this. So if it's God who reveals the truth of the gospel to searchers, why don't we just cut out the middleman? I could, I could hear Chris Shem saying that in my mind. Um, <laughs> I, that just sounds like something you'd say. Let's just cut out the middleman here. Why don't we need us? If it's God who reveals the truth to people. And I think, I think Paul would say in one passage, he says, uh, how, how will people know unless they hear? How will they believe unless they hear? How, how will they believe and hear if nobody's sent to them? So for Paul, it, a message requires a messenger. And in the wisdom of God, he has given this, us this privilege of participating and sharing, being messengers of the cross. So Paul, he was crazy enough to go to Corinth and share the cross because he knew his part. He knew the part he was called to play. He knew the part that the searchers, the listeners were called to play. And he knew God's part to play. And he didn't confuse those three roles.
1: So back to that debate that happened last week. When you look at science on one side and religion on the other side, there's a lot of stuff that you can say about that that I'm not going to say. But when you step back behind it a little bit and you look at the creationists, I think what you see behind this is this belief that if we could just get the science right... So, we invest lots of time and effort and money in building institutions and training scientists and conducting experiments. You know, how could we, you know, what what does a seven day creation cycle look like? What does the literal firmament around the globe look like? You know, what happens if there is a global flood and a bunch of, all the species are put in a boat? We try to figure all of that out because if we can just get the science right, then maybe we could be just convincing enough that we could prove this and people would really believe it. The only problem with that line of thinking is at some point, even if you did all that, even if you've completely proved the entire Genesis account scientifically, at some point you're going to have to say that then he died and was raised back to life and all the scientists are going to go, wait a minute, that's absurd. And you've just lost the crowd, just like Paul lost the crowd in, in Athens. The message of the cross is absurd to those who are perishing. And there's nothing that we can do to convince people that it's true. Only God has the power to change someone's heart. And uh, Andy, I've got got that video ready. I'd like to show you guys this video here. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm still a teenager and I'm trying to speak your my way when I'm trying to talk to other people about oh God it's really difficult because of the culture kind of Thailand is deeply rooted Every time I go to the temple, everyone worships the Buddha, but I don't. The older people look at me, and I'm pointing at to And I just smile and say, oh, that's okay. <laughs> Every time I go, I feel like I'm revealing my head and just this thing it is, and try to learn what it is. So that I know how to be a better system and meet those around me. For a long time, I've the nail polish. I like nail painting. One day, my friends and I wondered if we could use nail painting to share our daily outfit. It might sound strange, but I believe God can use what we like to do for His purpose. This is Angel. I feel like so awkward.
1: We saw was a girl, 17 years old. Her family's Buddhist. Her father is an elder at the temple. She feels the judgment from her family, from all the elders in the community. What does she do? She loves, she listens, she paints nails, she shares the gospel. What you don't see is almost as important as what you do see. You don't see when you look at her, you don't see stress, you don't see anxiety. You don't see extensive Bible study or theology texts or scientific texts or arguing or debating or reasoning or identifying people or any of that stuff. You just see a girl full of joy sowing seeds, painting nails, sharing the gospel. And that's what we're called to do sow seeds. When you sow seeds, what happens? Some of them fall on the path and they get taken away by the birds. Some fall on rocky soil and they get beaten down by the sun. Some fall in the weeds and get choked out. But some land in fertile soil and no sprout and they thrive. This is what Paul says just a little bit later in the same book. It follows that the person who plants isn't anything special. The person who waters isn't anything special. What matters is God who gives the growth. The person who plants and the person who waters are just the same, and each will receive his own reward according to his own work. We are God's fellow workers, you see. You are God's farm, God's building. So what I want to do today is just encourage you to let go. Let go of the burden that you have to convince people. To make them believe, to, to have to say the gospel just the right way, at just the right time, with just the right words. Because if you, if you bring it on too early or say something too weird, then you're going to turn someone away. We don't have to have the best argument, the best proof, the most convincing scientific description, the best presentation with the best graphics and music and anything. Because even if we did, right there in the midst of that presentation is going to come out that something that is so absurd that it's going to overshadow everything else. And for some people, that's going to be a complete turn-off. And for others, it's going to be the hope that will change their lives forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your Spirit that reveals to us this truth that has freed us. Father, our prayer today is that your Spirit is alive and active in this world that you are going into people, that you are working into people, creating fertile soil. Father, send us your people of peace, people that you're working in, and give us the courage to share this absurd message that you gave us that that has meant so much to us, that has changed our lives, that is changing this world. Father, give us the courage just to sow these seeds out lovingly, with compassion, to the world, to the field that you're preparing. In Jesus' name, amen.